Welcome to the Commonwealth Club Radio Program, America's longest-running radio show. I'm Gloria Duffy, President and CEO of the Club, a nonpartisan, nonprofit civic forum that's brought people together for 120 years to explore important topics. Thank you for joining us today. In October, the U.S. Congressional Strategic Posture Commission released its final report, America's Strategic Posture. The bipartisan group of 12 former officials appointed by Congress assessed the international threats facing the United States. They reviewed U.S. defense strategy and force structure, including nuclear weapons. Their report concludes that the United States now faces unprecedented threats from authoritarian regimes that are building up their military forces and behaving aggressively towards their neighbors. Major concerns include the Chinese program to add a thousand strategic nuclear weapons to its arsenal. Russian behavior in Ukraine, and mutual support between Russia and China. The commissioners call for an all-of-government U.S. effort to counter these threats. Former U.S. House of Representatives Speaker Nancy Pelosi appointed me to this commission, where I served with 11 others to examine the greatest threats faced by our country and how they should be addressed. Recently, three other members of the commission joined me on stage at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco to discuss the report and our findings. Dr. Madeline Creeden, who chaired the commission, is a former principal deputy administrator for the Department of Energy's National Nuclear Security Administration. She is also a former assistant secretary of defense. The vice chair of the commission was John Kyle, a former Republican U.S. senator from Arizona. And Rose Gottemuller is the former deputy secretary general of NATO and is currently the Stephen C. Hazy lecturer at Stanford University's Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies and its Center for International Security and Cooperation. Here is our conversation. This country has had a lot on its plate in terms of public policy challenges. We have had economic challenges, we've had the pandemic, other public health issues. We have homelessness, the war in Ukraine, the war between Hamas and Israel at this point. It's a lot to think about. And we haven't spent a lot of time focusing in our public debate and discussion in recent years about our fundamental national security. We are here to tell you tonight that that is something that we must do. And in fact, the three of us who are here, plus our fourth colleague who will appear shortly, have just finished serving for a total of 18 months on a commission established by Congress to take a new look at America's national security, the strategic challenges we face. Our chair, who is to my left, will be giving you an overview of that commission and its purview. And of course, we'll be talking about the findings and recommendations as well. I think part of our message here is it's time to think about this in a very fundamental way, in a way we haven't since the end of the Cold War and the end of the Soviet Union and our set of policies that we adopted to to deal with that phase. Let me introduce our commission uh, members who are here. It was a commission of 12, all of whom have served in government, whether in the legislative branch and the executive branch uh, elsewhere. Four members, including the chair and the vice chair of the commission, are with us tonight. To my left is Madeline Creeden. Madeline 
served as chair of the Congressional Strategic Posture Commission. She's had a long career in federal service. She was the principal deputy administrator of the National Nuclear Security Administration within the Department of Energy. She served in the Pentagon as Assistant Secretary of Defense for Global Strategic Affairs. She oversaw policy development in the areas of missile defense, nuclear security, combating weapons of mass destruction, cybersecurity, and space. She served as counsel for the U.S. Senate Committee on Armed Services for many years. Welcome, Madam Chairwoman. To her left is Senator John Kyle. He served 18 years in the U.S. Senate, and before that, eight years in the U.S. House of Representatives from Arizona. He was elected unanimously by his colleagues in 2008 to serve as Republican whip. He served on the Intelligence, Judiciary, Finance, and Armed Services Committees, among others. He was appointed by Arizona Governor Doug Ducey to fill the seat of the late Senator John McCain. So welcome, Senator Kyle, who was the vice chair of the commission. The Honorable Rose Gottemuller, to my right, is currently a lecturer at Stanford University's Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies. Before she came to join us in our area at Stanford, she was Deputy Secretary General of NATO. Prior to NATO, she served for five years as the Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security. While she was Assistant Secretary of State for Arms Control Verification and Compliance, she was the chief negotiator of the new Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty called New START with the Russian Federation, and that is the last major treaty we've had with Russia restricting nuclear arms. So welcome. Thank Rose. you. So let me turn to Chairwoman Creedon to summarize the commission process and our report. Well, um, thank you. Thank you so much, um, Gloria. Uh, and I really appreciate being here this evening with you all and having the opportunity to discuss today's unique uh, geopolitical challenges. Before we actually get into the recommendations of the commission, I wanted to start with a little bit of history and sort of set the stage for our commission and some of the reasons why we did what we did. In 2008, Congress was coming off some fairly contentious debates on nuclear systems and policy, including two proposals for two new nuclear weapons, a robust nuclear earth penetrator called the ARNEP and a reliable replacement warhead, and whether these systems would make nuclear use more or less likely. The START Treaty, the START-1 Treaty, was going to expire in December of 2009, and when that happened, there would be nothing in place to constrain the size of the U.S. and the Russian strategic nuclear arsenals. An election was coming in November of 2008, and there would be a new administration the following January. Moreover, the Cold War had been over for more than a decade. The cooperative threat reduction programs with Russia were coming to a close. The Russian economy was expanding, and Russia was many years into a significant effort to modernize its nuclear forces, its warheads, its delivery systems, and its infrastructure. And it was time for a comprehensive review and assessment of U.S. nuclear policy, posture, force structure to guide the new administration. So Congress established the first Strategic Posture Commission in 2008 to conduct this review. The chair and the vice chair of that first commission are probably well known to everyone here. They were two former secretaries of defense, William Perry and Jim Schlesinger. And they issued their report in 2009 with over 150 recommendations. In retrospect, two significant themes stand out from that report. The first is that the relationship with Russia 
which was seen as hopeful with real opportunities for collaboration and joint efforts to reduce the size of the respective nuclear arsenals and to reduce reliance on nuclear weapons generally. That was the environment in which they were doing their work. And, of course, you'll recall that in 2007, former Senators Sam Nunn, George Shultz, William Perry, and Henry Kissinger published the first of what would be a series of five op-eds in the Wall Street Journal about the path to reducing nuclear weapons. And the second point is that the report itself focused on Russia. There was almost no mention of China in that 2009 report. So the policy considerations on which the first commission were most focused, however, were also very different. In the 2009 report, the policy balance was between the need for effective nuclear deterrence on the one hand and to lead international efforts to prevent nuclear proliferation and reduce the saliency and the number of nuclear weapons globally. That commission also hoped that the world would head in a direction in which proliferation and nuclear terrorism are reduced and where there is cooperation among major powers to ensure strategic stability. They, and I'll quote from Secretary Perry, they rejected the vision of a world defined over the next decade or two by a renewal of competition for nuclear advantage among the major powers. President Obama's 2009 Prague speech and the Obama administration's 2010 Nuclear Posture Review also reflected much of that optimism while reinforcing the need for a safe, secure, effective, reliable, and credible nuclear deterrent. Indeed, by April 2010, the U.S. and Russia had signed the rapidly negotiated New START Treaty, thanks to Rose's good work, that placed limits on operationally deployed strategic systems and warheads. While there were still significant problems in the U.S.-Russia relationship, there was a view that additional arms control agreements would follow New START and that the risk of nuclear confrontation would diminish. At the same time, however, the U.S. also started on a delayed and much-needed modernization program for its nuclear weapons, delivery systems, and infrastructure. Each leg of the triad would be replaced, bombers, ICBMs, and ballistic missile submarines, and the warheads would all go through a significant overhaul, known as the Life Extension Programs. This effort, with the addition of a new long-range standoff cruise missile, is what we now refer to as the program of record. As planned, that effort was sized and still is to meet the limitations of the New START Treaty. So fast forward 14 years, and it's a very different world. The scenario that the First Commission hoped to see not only didn't come to fruition, but the world has actually gone in the opposite directions. As tensions have increased and the probability of nuclear use, while still low, has increased. Russia, in particular, has sought to cajole and coerce Ukraine and others with the prospect of nuclear use going so far as to deploy nuclear weapons into Belarus. As a result, in 2021, as part of the 2022 National Defense Authorization Act, Congress once again sought a review and assessment of U.S. nuclear policy strategy, posture, and force structure, and established a new Strategic Posture Commission, our commission. So our 2023 report, which we just issued in October, is consistent with our statutory charge which was to conduct a review of the strategic posture of the United States, including a strategic threat assessment and a detailed review of nuclear weapons policy, strategy, and force structure, and factors affecting the strategic stability of new peer competitors of the U.S. and peer and near-peer nuclear power competition. And this language conveys one of the many meaningful changes from the First Commission report, and that really is the emergence of China. In the statutory language, the near-peer nuclear power is China, although if it stays on its current trajectory, it will be a peer nuclear power in a decade or so. 
as it rapidly expands its nuclear and non-nuclear force structures. Thus, for the first time, the U.S. will need to deter two nuclear peers, a significant change in the geopolitical landscape from 2009. So as Gloria mentioned, our commissioners, there were 12 of us. We came from a broad range of the political spectrum, but we were all committed to completing our task and producing a clear-eyed consensus report. Our report is threat-informed, it's forward-looking, and it's bipartisan. The report provides high-level guidance to shape future decision-making and generally refrains from picking specific systems. We provide characteristics of recommended capabilities, but we did not pick specifically winners and losers. We do support the program of record, but find that while necessary, it is not sufficient. The time frame for our report is important. It's, it's 2027 and beyond, looking at least to 2035. Although the report is hard-hitting, it is actually fairly subtle, and this subtlety has led to some confusion about what the report does and does not recommend. To be clear, we are not recommending substantial increases in the U.S. nuclear force posture. We do not endorse a new nuclear arms race. We do, however, support additional conventional forces, such as air refueling tankers, conventional prompt strike, missile defense, cyber, and space capabilities. We also support continued diplomatic efforts to reduce risk and increase strategic stability. We are not, by any stretch, abandoning arms control and related efforts, such as transparency and confidence-building measures. Sadly, that hopeful environment and the vision of widespread reductions from 15 years ago is no longer realistic, and the prospects for agreements on nuclear arms control today appear bleak. China has little to no interest in traditional arms control, although the recent discussions between Xi and Biden, which were here, seem to have made some small progress towards transparency. There is no reason to stop pursuing these broader risk reduction efforts when achievable and in the U.S. national interest. And we believe if there are opportunities, they should be explored. But let's turn now to the threat, which is really the basis for most of our recommendations. We devote a chapter of the report to the growing threat from China and Russia, plus North Korea and Iran, although the pacing and guiding threats are, of course, Russia and China. It's important to understand what each country is doing to upend the global order. We all know that threats from Russia and China are different, but each is growing and expanding. China is developing a true nuclear triad more rapidly than expected. It's increasing its nuclear stockpile, and it appears to be moving away from a no-first-use posture. Both China and Russia are engaged in coercive and aggressive behaviors regionally and are a significant threat to our allies and partners. Both are trying to divide U.S. alliances, challenge and limit the U.S. role in the world, and expand and substitute their influence and leverage. Today, the U.S. is on the cusp of a fundamentally different global setting for which we did not plan and are not well prepared. So as a result, the Commission was very focused on getting and being prepared and laying the foundation now for the decisions in the future, because we want to ensure that that decision makers in the future can actually make decisions and that they have options to do so. So I'll close with just the five assumptions that underpin our report. Russia and China will continue their current respective adversarial paths, each growing the quality and quantity of their nuclear arsenals. China will continue to grow its conventional forces, including its space and cyber capabilities. Russia will also grow its space and cyber capabilities and increase its nuclear capacity. And each will seek to supplant the U.S. global leadership role. Two, today's one major war strategy is no longer viable, particularly given China's current trajectory. The six foundational longstanding tenets of U.S. nuclear strategy remain valid. 
Four, strong allies and partners are essential and make all of us stronger together. But we need greater cooperation, coordination, and integration. And finally, the U.S. deterrent must be credible and seen that way by our adversaries as well as our partners. And finally, we spent a fair amount of time talking about the fact that the U.S. needs a true whole-of-government approach to deter and prepare for the possibility of a two-theater conflict. Nuclear and conventional force sizing and composition must reflect this strategy. It could be larger, it could be different, or it could be both. In any event, thank you so much, and I appreciate the opportunity to be here with our colleagues. I'm sorry the rest of us are not here this evening, but having set the stage for a little bit more detailed discussion, I'll close and hand it off to the vice chair. Thank you very much. I think the history lesson that Madeline has given here is really important because um, it will inform how we go forward and try to avoid mistakes that we've made in the past. I'm going to be a little bit more specific now. You heard Madeline say that the program of record, that's the technical term that we use for the the things that we want to achieve in the near term here, is absolutely essential. And that program of record is really two big things simultaneously. We're refurbishing our nuclear weapons. We're bringing them up to date. We're not adding any. We're not creating any new capability, but we're Well, I'll give you an example. One of the lab directors gave me a a vacuum tube as a souvenir. He said, we took this off of the front of one of our our warheads, and we replaced it uh, with a circuit board. (laughs) So there are some modernization things like that occurring with our very sophisticated nuclear weapons. The other thing that's being done is, at the same time, replacing all of the delivery vehicles for these weapons the bomber force, the Minutemen missiles, and the submarines with their ballistic missiles. Unfortunately, both of these things have to happen at the same time. So we've got two big bills coming due at the same time. That's our current program of record. And what was this all designed to do? It was designed to get us back in the game with Russia. Something new happened. China came along and decided that it wanted to be the equal of Russia and the United States, and embarked on what many have called the greatest military significance since the Cold War. And one thing we learned was that the Chinese habitually get their programs done ahead of schedule rather than behind schedule, which frequently characterizes our problem. So in about 10 years or so, they believe that they will have a, a nuclear triad, the equal of Russia's and the United States. We have not planned for that. That's not baked into any of our current military planning, equipment, capabilities, or whatever. We've begun to think about it, and that's where our commission comes in. So we said, yes, we have to complete the existing program of record, 2010 version, but that's not sufficient to deal with the new threat. For that, we have to do some new things. Basically, we're going to have to create a new second program of record, which hasn't been done yet. And we recommend basically three time frames to accomplish several things here, an immediate, a medium term, and a longer term. We don't know exactly how many nuclear weapons we're going to need to deal with both Russia and China. We don't know exactly what else we're going to need. But we do want to be sure that we have the capacity to produce what we need when we figure it out. And so in the near term, we're recommending that the United States must accelerate its modernization of the entire nuclear enterprise. By that, we mean our laboratories, our production facilities, our our very capable nuclear physicists, all of the experimental things that we work with. 
and importantly, to develop some production capacity that we don't have. The United States is the only nuclear power in the world today that doesn't have a hot production line. We, we don't produce nuclear weapons now. You didn't know that. We have to create that capability. And so we're gradually beginning to think about how to do that. But there have been a lot of starts and stops here. A lot of things went wrong. There are a lot of people to blame. But the reality is we're stumbling into this next phase. We recommend we've got to have the production capacity to size a force and with the kind of weapons that we need that will be adequate to deter both Russia and China in the future. Just one example. We're, one of the components of a nuclear weapon is the so-called primary. It's the thing that goes bang first. It's made of plutonium usually. And we need to make plutonium pits for refurbishing these weapons. We haven't made those in a long time except in the laboratory one by one by one. We now have a plan to produce those at a plant in Savannah River, Georgia. So how do we size that plant? Well, we'd planned on doing about 80 of these a year. We're probably going to have to have more capacity than that. So that's a kind of decision that Congress and the administration are going to have to make. How big should this be? How much is it going to cost? Let's get on with the job of creating the capacity. So at least we're not denying ourselves the ability to do things when we figure out what we need to do. Then in the medium term, we also need to take a look at what we already have and what we've kind of put on the shelf but might want to bring back in, into use. Uh, after the New START Treaty, we took some amount of our capability off of the submarines and off of the bombers and fixed them so that they no longer had the ability to deliver a certain number of weapons. One of our recommendations is let's go back, let, let's practice uploading the weapons that we used to carry on those on those delivery vehicles so that if we do need to have more capability quickly, we will have at least practiced figuring out how to do it and how to do it quickly. That's just one example of the kind of thing that we want to recommend, at least in the near in the med medium term. That That's not going to cost a huge amount of money. The beginning work on our production capacity, will it will cost money. And we also recommend in the near term that we rebuild our conventional forces to the extent we can, and that, that will cost money. Because remember that if we can deter a conventional war, we're probably going to be able to deter a nuclear war. But if a conventional war gets out of hand, it could go nuclear quickly. So you can't just focus on the nuclear side. We've got to have a strong conventional deterrent. I mentioned the first two phases. In the long term, we're probably going to have to spend more money on, on more things. We recommend, for example, that we will probably need more B-21 bombers than are currently planned. We're probably going to need more of the new replacement missile called the Sentinel than are currently planned. And we are pretty sure we're going to need more of the nuclear ballistic missile submarines, the new Columbia-class submarine, than are currently planned. Those are really long-term projects because we're talking about building out the current program of record, remember, to deal with the Russian problem, and then adding to that whatever we think might be necessary for China. But we're talking now 10 or 15 years out in the future, notionally at least. So we're not talking about spending a lot of money really soon, except on our conventional forces. But these are the kinds of specific things that we recommend should be done to deal with the new threat. Just a couple of other comments. We are already struggling to get our current program of record completed on time. We don't have the same industrial capacity to produce military weapons that we've always been able to count on in the past. We now have supply chains that are so brittle 
that we can't get everything just in time when we need it, and that creates problems for us. We don't have the technical capability, all the way from welders for building submarines to nuclear physicists. We've got huge workforce and infrastructure deficiencies that will require a whole-of-government approach to address, and that's one of our, our, well, several of our recommendations relate to that. And that's to deal with our current program of record. How about the new stuff we're talking about? Well, times whatever you want to make it. So we've got some big challenges on how we're going to get all of this done and get it done in time so that neither Russia nor China ever feel that they are so far ahead of us that they are tempted to try to engage us in a nuclear conflict. That's what we have to avoid, what we have to deter. The final thing I'll say is that our political leaders in the past have let us down. They haven't talked about this with the American people. How many of your neighbors do you think know anything about what we're talking about here? And how do you think they will respond to their local congressman who calls them to a meeting and says, by the way, I know we want to build more highways and we've got to fund education and health care, but there's something else we've got to do. We have to buy some, some more ballistic missiles. What are you talking about will be, the, will be the response. So one of our recommendations is our political leaders in Congress and in the executive branch, starting with the president, have got to take this case to the American people to educate the American people about why we have a problem, what the problem is, and how we're going to work our way out of it, and what it's going to require from them in terms of supporting public policies to get this job done. If we don't do that, we fear Congress won't make the kinds of decisions that it has to make in order to effectuate our recommendations. That's a little bit more of a granular view of the kind of things we're recommending to deal with the threat that Madeline discussed. I'll make a few quick points. I know we want to get to our discussion, but um, first of all, I I wanted to emphasize a couple of things that both Madeline Creedon and and John Kyle have said. First, getting to the point about near-term, medium-term, long-term, we just heard about the report is very much focused on the period. Our tasking was look at the situation from 2026, 27 to 2035. And so we were focused on thinking about that longer term, but we also realized that we had to get there by going through these near-term phases, particularly ensuring that our program of record in existence uh, for over a decade is fully implemented. It's necessary, but not sufficient. And we didn't want to see any chance of further delay falling into this near-term period. We've got to get the program of record implemented. Uh, The second point I'd like to make has to do with the fact that the language in the report was really carefully calibrated to give the U.S. government as much flexibility as possible. In fact, when we've, at least when I've been briefing it around some of our government colleagues, they said, why didn't you prioritize things, you know? But the point was we wanted to not select winners and losers in particular program areas, as, as Madeline has already mentioned, but just talk about how we see the threat environment and then what we need to do about it through different phases over the next 15, even 20 years, up to the 2040s. So that was very, very important not to pick winners or losers or endorse particular programs. We also did not insist on a quantitative answer to the problem of having more nuclear targets. Rather, you'll see throughout the report that 
we stressed that changes to the size and or composition of the nuclear forces would be necessary to address the greater number of nuclear targets. So this language conveys that for the United States, the answer is uh, to the problem of more targets is quantitative, perhaps it's qualitative, or perhaps it's a combination of those two things. So I wanted to get that out on the table for our discussion as well. The recommendations and findings of the report are consistent with the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, the speech he made to the Arms Control Association last June, talking about the goals of U.S. policy in this area. And the report is clearly threat-based, as uh, both Madeline and and John have said. It's very hard-edged in talking about the threat, and so it needs to be. But uh, in our findings, we recognize that we have to, because of the, the nature of that threat, look to a future either with or without further nuclear arms control. But just as Madeline said, we did not embrace the notion of a future without nuclear arms control. And if at all possible, we want to be able to pursue risk reduction activities, continue to do that. I've been very glad to see that when President Xi Jinping and President Biden met here at uh, Filoli down the, down the road, that they endorsed continuing talks, as have been begun in early November, on arms control and nonproliferation between the United States and China. This is a breakthrough. The Chinese never agreed to talk about arms control in the past as a specific topic. So I hope that based on the president's endorsement, we can continue to uh, to move down that path, and we'll, we'll see where it takes us. But arms control risk reduction, strategic stability discussions, these things uh, should and will, I think, continue to be under consideration for both the Russians and the Chinese. And we need to see whether the Chinese are going to are going to bite. So far, they've been very reluctant, but maybe we're headed in the right direction. Final point I'd like to make, and it's already been mentioned, but The report does talk a lot about nuclear capabilities and capacity and the problems that we have in that arena. But a full spectrum of non-nuclear capabilities is essential to the nation's strategic posture. This report is called America's Strategic Posture. It's not called America's Nuclear Posture. So we also recommend a number of non-nuclear capabilities, uh, resilient space architecture, Uh, our ability to ensure that the United States is on the cutting edge of emerging technologies. And this was something I think Gloria might have a few more words to say about because we were insistent that the United States must stay on that cutting edge going forward. Prioritization of long-range precision strike that is conventional in nature, long-range missiles that are conventional in nature. Madeline has mentioned that. And developing and fielding homeland integrated air and missile defense that can deter and defeat coercive attacks by Russia and China, as well as continue to be able to deter North Korea from striking the continental United States. So these are some of the non-nuclear areas that we were also very focused on, as well as just the bread and butter of what we need to do to keep our aircraft flying. For example, again, Madeline mentioned modernization and upgrading of the tanker fleet. So just a few additional points I wanted to to really footstomp some of the messages that have already come out from the chair and vice chair. But with that, over to you. This is the Commonwealth Club Radio Program. Thanks for joining us for a report on U.S. national security. Featuring Dr. Madeline Creeden, Senator John Kyle, Ambassador Rose Gottemuller, and me, Gloria Duffy. 
You can get the inside scoop on the Commonwealth Club of California, our events, our travel program, and more by subscribing to our email newsletter at commonwealthclub.org email. Now, back to our program. Thank you very much, Rose. I'm going to take just a moment putting on my hat as a commission member and then returning to my hat as the moderator. Just a word about the commission. Twelve members all have served in government but are not currently serving in government. Evenly divided, bipartisan, six notional Democrats, six notional Republicans, appointed by congressional leaders, the armed services committees of both houses, and other congressional leaders like majority and minority leaders. I happen to be the appointee of our our friend Nancy Pelosi when she was a majority leader, a broadly cast group. And we started from very different perspectives, I think. But it is a consensus report. After taking a look at the intelligence and the information and the magnitude of the changes since the prior commission report, we all agreed on our conclusions and recommendations. A very few additional words. In the national security field, we often say that a threat is a combination of intentions and capabilities. So we have seen a major change since the 1990s in the threats we face that are combinations of the intentions and capabilities of other major powers. So Russia has been modernizing its military capabilities and has been engaging in a brutal, unprovoked, and inexcusable war in Ukraine. That is the combination of the capabilities and what we read as intentions towards other countries uh, by Russia. In China, it's been referred to their dramatic buildup. China is on a program to add 1,000 strategic nuclear weapons by about 2035 or so. But as John said, they tend to meet their goals faster than they set them out. So we have two authoritarian countries with designs on their neighbors. China has been talking about repatriating Taiwan, even by a certain date. We also have protestations of collaboration between Russia and China, of their undying friendship and so on, and also increasing threats from North Korea and Iran. So these combinations of capabilities and intentions have changed the environment from the U.S. My last service in government was in a thankful, wonderful role I was able to play, helping to get rid of about 7,000 nuclear weapons in the former Soviet Union through what was called the Nunn-Luger program, together with my, my colleagues here. That was a unique point in time when the doors were open with Russia in particular and Ukraine and Belarus and Kazakhstan to get rid of a number of their nuclear weapons that had been targeted against us. It is a very changed environment today. We must, above everything, protect ourselves. We, we have to have an effective deterrent. And the changes in numbers of nuclear weapons facing us make that a different proposition today than it has been in the future. And hence, sizing our nuclear force or deploying it or targeting it, whatever, in a way that continues to ensure our deterrence ensures that our values and our allies and our interests in the world 
are protected in a way that we can continue to maintain a system that is different from the more authoritarian systems that that we see uh, as adversaries. I will say we looked at potential for arms control as part of this survey, and we did make a proposal. We found one technology called fractional orbital bombardment systems that the Chinese have been pursuing to be something we felt perhaps we, Russia, China, could all agree on to have a ban on this type of technology. So we did propose seeking such a ban. We also proposed in our report to have the U.S. intelligence community do more work on figuring out why the Chinese are adding so many strategic nuclear weapons so rapidly. What's the goal there? Final note, it seems to me and it seemed to us that it will be a while until we are able to get any productive, more collaborative discussions going with Russia, having to do with leadership in Russia. With China, perhaps there are possibilities still, as exemplified by the meetings that took place around APEC here, not only between President Xi and Biden, but also between the Assistant Secretary of State for Arms Control and Verification, Mallory Stewart, and her counterpart on the Chinese side, where they discussed arms control and nonproliferation. We have lots of questions. Well, let's start with a rather general one. And fellow commissioners, feel free to take a stab, anyone who would like to. What are the major political or other roadblocks to proceeding with the proposed plan by the commission? It's a very good question. You are all aware, because you read the newspaper and follow the news on TV, of the machinations that the Congress is going through right now to do lots of different things. But at the center of it is trying to fund the government for another year. And at the center of that is both the authorization bill for the Defense Department and the various appropriation bills that fund the programs that we're talking about here. Getting Congress to pass those bills and to do so in a sensible way will be very difficult because this isn't something their constituents care about. And also because they've got some internal partisan issues going back and forth. They've also fallen into some very bad habits of not getting their work done on time, namely getting appropriations bills passed, as a result of which everything piles up at the end of the year, and their only realistic alternative usually is to ball it up into a great big omnibus appropriation bill on a Tuesday night and send it to the respective houses for passage by Thursday. Well, this does not please the rank and file, as you can imagine, and it makes for a very bad legislating they usually can't quite get all that done quickly, so they just kick the can down the road for a couple months with a continuing resolution, which is, well, we'll just keep spending the money we spent last year on the same things we funded last year until we figure out this new thing. And that goes on for a while. Now, you're a defense contractor, and you're supposed to bid on contracts to give the Defense Department what they, what they want. How do you plan in this environment? You can't. You have to hire real people, and you have to have real warehouse space or, or manufacturing space and so on. It's really hard the way that the Congress and the Pentagon do business for our private sector to get in the game and, and help out here. They want to, but it's hard. So there are a lot of reforms throughout our government that need to occur. And this is one another reason we talk about a whole of government approach. Let's see, I guess both of you had made the point earlier, and Gloria and Madeline, that this starts with a conversation with the American people. How does a three-peer scenario differ from two-peer scenario? 
how does this change how we must strategically position ourselves? I think I'll take it in a little bit different direction. So in your own personal relationships, very often it's much easier to have a one-on-one relationship. Well, in dealing with countries, it's often easier to have a bilateral relationship, have a one-on-one relationship. When you introduce a third party, you've totally changed the dynamic. So agreements customs between the two, ways to resolve issues over time between the two. Now you have a third party in the mix. So it really does change the dynamic. It changes how each party thinks about the other two parties. It changes how one party may decide to align with another party in a way that is new. For us, in a in a deterrence perspective, it changes how we think about what we need. So when, when we were mostly focused on, on Russia, we had a better sense of what we needed to deter conventional war. Now that China is in the mix, it makes it harder. We have to come to a different conclusion because the theaters are very different, obviously, require different things. Uh, the European theater is more land-based. The Asia-Pacific theater is, is more sea-based. It's more ships. It, they're just very different. So we have to not replicate things, but we have to think about, well, what's what does this theater need? What does this theater need? And also we have to think about what if what if they collaborate? What if they do something together or what if they do something sequentially? What if there's an opportunity for aggression when one occupies us over here and the other then comes in for this opportunistic approach? It's just it's very different. And so I'll just say in the same way that a relationship with two people is very different from a relationship with three people. And just to add very briefly to that, uh, we also have very different alliance relationships Mm -hmm. in the two theaters with the NATO alliance, obviously now 31 countries and been very coherent in my view since the Russian invasion of Ukraine a year ago, February. But that's very different from our very good allies in Asia, ROK, Japan, Australia, New Zealand far-flung allies in some cases, but also allies that we are dealing with more on a a bilateral parallel basis rather than everybody working together in quite the same way that the NATO alliance works. So it's different. But I do want to underscore the point of the report about the importance of our alliance relationships and how they are a force multiplier for the United States in so many ways, because that was a very fundamental recommendation, finding and recommendation uh, among the uh, those in the report. Thank you. I get the sense that the U.S. alone will not adequately deter Russia, China, Iran in the future. Does this commission engage the EU and the collective West in working toward broader combining capability and creating broader collective nuclear deterrence? Well, it's, I mean, it's exactly what, what Rose just talked the about. Deter- I mean, deterrence relationship. And we do talk about the necessity of looking at uh, non-strategic nuclear capabilities and thinking anew about how we uh, extend nuclear deterrence to our allies, again, both in Europe and in Asia. In Europe, we have the long-standing extended deterrent mission where we have deployed some warheads in Europe and the, the NATO allies cooperate with us on, on delivery in the horrible case that it would ever have to happen. But we work very closely together there. The situation is much different in in Asia, and I think that there will be have to be a lot of thought going into how we continue to bolster extended deterrence in Asia. I thought the president uh, and his agreement with the ROK president last May to establish this enhanced cooperation between ROK and U.S. on the extended deterrence relationship there was very powerful, and I think we'll have to see more of that occurring in Asia. Another question about allies. 
If South Korea and Japan were given the money, could that increase U.S. naval capabilities faster and cheaper than having all the work done in the USA? Is this inaction a strategic risk or for congressional members a risk worth taking to keep jobs in the USA? I mean, it is important that we expand these relationships with our allies and and that we also have an obligation to look to our allies for more than what they do now. And they have an obligation to us to demand greater cooperation. So we have to expand our cooperation with them. And when I say that, I don't just mean what we often think about and just having our allies buy more American things, but we also have to utilize their capabilities, their industrial base, utilize their technical skills, do joint development work, um, do joint production work. There are some very good programs right now in the missile defense arena where we're doing joint development and joint production with Japan. Um, We need to do more of that. Space is a great opportunity where we can do joint work. Well, we have a, a lot of things going on with Australia where we have joint satellite development programs and also where we have joint situation awareness. Um, the Australians have some very good capabilities on the ground to help with greater understanding of what's going on in space, the space situational awareness. So we have to expand all of these capabilities. And some of our allies are doing really well in terms of their contributions and others, frankly, need to do a little more. And it's complicated because a sovereign country does what's best for it, and that isn't always what's best for everybody else. So you can't necessarily say, well, the United States can solve some of our deterrent problems by shoving it over onto an ally. A good example here, we're having, uh, well, I'll state it differently. There is some disagreement about what would be best for Taiwan to deter China from ever trying to attack it. Countries sometimes like to buy shiny objects to show off to their to their folks, but maybe they'd ought to be buying quiet submarines that nobody ever sees, you know, just for example. So it's fine to have allies. I mean, it's more than fine. It's necessary, and that's one of our strengths because we've got allies, and these other, our adversaries really don't, except, except their little tight group among themselves. It's not necessarily a one-for-one force multiplier, You've got to work with them to coordinate what everybody is producing, make sure it works together, make sure they can deploy things together, and that everybody's pulling in the same direction if you're going to rely upon other countries, for example, as NATO partners. Why weren't we prepared for the rise of China? It seems like a massive oversight from intelligence. I think the business community in the United States and to some extent the political community was so enamored with the prospect of making a lot of money off of a $1 billion plus market of Chinese folks that we were willing to overlook for years a lot of intellectual theft and other practices by China that in ordinary circumstances would not be considered friendly at all. Moreover, nobody likes to think about war or preparation for war to me, it was, I mean, I was there at the time. I, I went through the debates about, should we let China into the WTO? Well, they're just going to disrupt things. They'll never comply with the WTO court rulings and so on. Well, no, we need them in there because if they're in the tent, then, then they'll have to cooperate with the rest of us. And besides that, we can all make a lot of money. There, there's a lot of hope involved in all of this. And sometimes it's not realistic. Sometimes it pans out. How did the 2024 presidential candidates, some who are state governors, become aware of your report? AIDS reading and summarizing is not as effective as hearing as we are tonight directly from commission members. 
Let me pose that to our uh, person with a long elected history. We, we focused on trying to get the message out, but the reality is we only had so much bandwidth as 12 people. We spent a lot of time trying to answer the question. In fact, there's an entire chapter in the report about what's at stake here? Why do we care about this? And therefore, why should the American people care about it? And part of that discussion related to our obligation in the world. Why do we have an obligation? Why aren't we isolationist? We talked about this a lot because there has always been a component of one political party and there is rapidly developing an equally boisterous component of the other political party that says we don't have to worry about what's going on abroad. We don't need to give uh, any help to Ukraine, for example. That's not our fight. Let's solve our own border first and not worry about their border. You've heard all the arguments. We come out very strongly for the proposition that the United States of America has a critical role to play globally and that if we don't do it, things can fall apart very, very quickly. Yes, that puts more responsibility on us. It may cost our taxpayers more money. Kind of like that old ad, pay me now or pay me later. If the country that can do something about this doesn't take the lead, bring allies and others along and spend what it takes to provide deterrence, aggressors will be tempted around the world. And eventually it'll be a lot worse than it is today. So we, we take a position on that debate that's occurring in Congress today are you more isolationist or more interventionist? And we, as 12, say we don't have any option, alternative, but to continue to play the global role that we have in the past. And we really emphasize the message that deterrence is cheaper than fighting the war. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Apart from Taiwan and the resources of the South China Sea, what is the threat from China? Two things. First of all, a country doesn't go from almost nothing to appear nuclear adversary overnight for nothing. Why are they doing what they're doing? We did ask the intelligence community to try to get a little more granularity in that. But the obvious answer generally is so that they will have more capability to do what they want to do without interference from the United States. That's why you have a big nuclear component to your defense establishment. They view themselves as the rising power of the future, and we're the past. And Xi himself personally has spoken and written a lot about the fact that it's about time. And this is not characteristic for a Chinese leader, by the way. But he, he believes it's about time that China step forward and take its proper role in the world. And that proper role is to be the big, the big dominator, starting with domination within its region. And then you add to that the deficiency that all authoritarian governments have. They, they don't have the check and balance of their people or others around the world who they listen to. Whatever they want, that's what they're going to get. That's the way their government is structured. Their historic burr under the saddle, which is Taiwan, and their absolute determination to bring Taiwan under Chinese Communist Party control one way or the other. And they're very clear about including by force if necessary. I know the question was other than that, but that's kind of like other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how'd you like to play? Uh, this is a big deal and could start World War III. So you put all of that together, and it's just something we didn't want to have to worry about it, but we've got no choice now. Do current treaties limit or prevent the numbers of weapons required to add deterrent capability to deal with China's threat? There are no treaties with China. With China. That's, I mean, that's one of the problems. There are no treaties with China. I mean, there have been 
efforts, certainly in context with, say, the P5, to try to set up norms. The U.S. has made a proposal that, for instance, ban on testing kinetic ASAT weapons that would create debris in space. We put that out there. Obviously, China has done that. Russia has done that. It has terrible long-term effects for space satellites. But but we've got to be a little more creative in trying to figure out how to at least go the path. But there are none. And that's really the problem. Does anybody want to say anything about the status of arms control agreements more generally? Well, let me just mention that, in fact, the new START treaty, which continues in force uh, and will continue in force until 2026, that treaty does limit the United States and Russia to 1,550 deployed warheads each. But bear in mind for the moment, this big buildup is coming from China. There's no question about it. But China at this moment has, you know, round about 500 warheads total compared to 1,550 deployed on the U.S. and Russia side, and a total on each side, U.S. and Russia, each about 4,000, 4,500 warheads. So China is building up fast, and the threat is before us. So I don't want to shortchange that at all. But for the moment, the agreement between the United States and Russia, the limits of New START, do not prevent us from continuing to deter China at the moment. It's this phased approach that I wanted to stress once again. We are worried not about today necessarily, but we are worried what we see coming in 2030, 2035, and that's what we have to pay attention to. So at the moment, the limits of the New START treaty are there still. Sadly, the Russians ceased uh, implementing the treaty last February with uh, Putin saying, you stop your assistance to Ukraine and then we'll return to implementing the new START treaty. Well, the administration quite rightly said you cannot try to leverage us by threatening us about the new START treaty. Both U.S. and Russia are committed to maintaining the limits of new START, but sadly at the moment we don't have the implementation measures like on-site verification and exchanges of information, databases, notifications, and so forth. So it's a real problem, but it's a problem of Russia's making. I do agree that we're in dire straits at the moment uh, with regard to nuclear arms control, but uh, let's see what the future may bring. Last question, and I'm going to ask for an answer from each person. What did you learn from being on this commission that surprised you the most? Madeline, go ahead. That you could actually reach consensus with 12 very disparate, I often refer to us as eclectic, uh, views. I really was not convinced we were going to get there. Uh, You know the first paragraph of Tolstoy's novel, Anna Karenina, when he, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, each family is unhappy in its own way, and we are like one big family, each of us unhappy in his or her own way, but we are a family, and we have this consensus to show for it. And to me, that was the biggest surprise, that in this disparate group of 12 very, very different people, we could end up, through months of deep discussions and intense debate, we could end up, at least I feel like, Mm These guys are somewhat my family, so they may not claim me, but nevertheless, that was my I I never had any doubt that we would come (laughs) together, but I I think in retrospect, the thing that really bothers me, and I I probably should have realized it, but what sort of surprised me is, you know, in the past, we've relied upon our great capacity as a country to 
build up our industrial base to our our military before World War II was the 17th largest in the world. And just in a matter of months, really, the United States, with its great industrial might, began to outproduce our enemies in a way that just made it inevitable that we were going to win both in the in the European and Pacific theater. And you look at the state of our industrial military base today and our scientific community and our workforce skills and all the rest of it, and China is way better than we are at this. And Russia, with its command economy, can get the job done on its own, too. Despite all the conversations we had with all the experts in government, I am not confident that any of them has an answer to this question. How are we going to get all this stuff done on time? They have a great can-do attitude, which I really love about particularly our military. You give them an order, and by golly, they'll say they're going to do it. But saying they're going to do it and figuring out a way to do it in today's environment is going to be really, really hard. It's going to take the American people somehow giving that support and funding it through the congressional appropriations and seeing the battle as a long-term battle. And there's nothing really more important for the United States government to do than to prevent nuclear war. So how to do it. I would like to thank John Kyle, Madeline Creedon, Rose Gottemuller. Wait a minute, you're ducking the question. Yes. (laughs) I would subscribe to both of those themes. Uh, The collaboration and consensus was very important on the commission. I, too, was surprised by the way that workforce issues and supply chain issues are affecting our defense effort. Whatever we see in the economy more generally, we see magnified in the very specialized areas in the defense industry. So that that is a major problem to compete with the exciting civilian technology economy we see so vibrant here in the Bay Area. Our defense efforts, the companies, the national labs, the production facilities are all losing out to the exciting civilian economy in attracting workforce and uh, having the the supplies and the commodities and the manufacturing capability to do their job. So thank you so much to our panel. Thank you so much to our audience here in San Francisco, to those who are participating online. I wish us all well in meeting this challenge. Thank you for joining us for the latest episode of the Commonwealth Club radio program. Today you heard from Dr. Madeline Creedon, Senator John Kyle, Ambassador Rose Gottemuller, and me, Gloria Duffy, President and CEO of the club. Join us again next week to hear Jason Rance discuss the politics of urban problems. Until then, you can learn more about us and our events at commonwealthclub.org. Find thousands of our programs on Apple Podcasts, Audible, and YouTube. And when you're in the Bay Area, we'd love to welcome you in person to the Commonwealth Club of California. To hear the entire hour-long version of these conversations, download the program from the club's website or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.